the rumblers, the stallers, the failed medicals, the lowballers, the wheeler dealers, the head turners, the lost paperwork, the slow burners. No, this is not the start of a Barclays Bank commercial. It's the start of a hark back to the zany and protracted transfer sagas of yesteryear. Deals whose dominance at the back pages dwarf their significance in football history and the nostalgic footballers who played their protagonist. Arthur, welcome back. It's the 11, of course. What an intro that was. I mean, that was so Drurian of you with deals you. that dwarfed the... You know, your alliterative <laughs> start there was incredible. <laughs> I feel like he maybe does his off the cuff, though. I, I yeah. must admit mine was written in front of me. Fair enough. The one I really enjoy him um, him doing is is simply when Messi's had an impact on on a game going yeah. something like, Messi mayhem! That's the alliteration. No, I am excited to discuss the, the rumblings. I think um, a transfer saga by its very nature kind of drags on has a bit of intrigue about it some drama left right and center we're going to be employing a 442 formation today i think um i i don't have anything to say other than that so I'll no i don't think you. anyone has ever had anything to say about a 442 formation to be to be perfectly honest Arthur, that's fine um at 11 pod it's the word not the number uh, if you've got any nostalgic names that you feel should have featured in the transfer saga 11 uh, we'd love to hear from you. Ben, which goalkeeper had us on tenterhooks one summer? <laughs> well, I have got a transfer saga in goal. And I, I imagine across this episode, we'll cover all sorts of sagas, some long, some short, some controversial. This was a shorter transfer saga, and it's that of Carlos Roa and his potential move to Manchester United. That name literally rings no bells. It rings no bells. No I mean, bells peace prize. Considering it was a potential transfer, was it one that didn't go through in the end? It fell through. It fell through, but possibly for the most bizarre reason imaginable. Carlos Roa was a villain in the eyes of many English football fans in the late 90s. He was the Argentina goalkeeper between the sticks for the 1998 World Cup penalty shootout with England, uh, which knocked us out of the tournament. And it was that tournament that probably was the pinnacle of his career. He conceded no goals in the group stage. And of course, he saved David Batty's penalty in the last 16 before a quarterfinal defeat to the Netherlands. He was relatively unknown before that tournament. It was that tournament really that, that put him on the world stage. His form for Mallorca had been impressive. They'd reached the Copa del Rey final. And it was this that had caught the attention of Sir Alex Ferguson at United. The World Cup rubber stamped Ferguson's interest and a a long rumbling rumour seemed to be coming to fruition in the summer uh, as Alex Ferguson made his move. Peter Schmeichel was coming to the end of his career. Roa seemed like the ideal replacement. But they certainly weren't expecting at United this bizarre transfer saga to unfold. Mallorca, as you would expect, were resigned to cashing in on their keeper and a fee was agreed with United. Roa heard of the interest. His response at the age of just 30 was to retire. (laughs) Okay. Um, 
a speechless Sir Alex Ferguson was forced to divert attention elsewhere. Mallorca couldn't believe that their prized asset was no longer and fan rumours swirled. And it was some days after that the real reason for this came out. Roa was a Seventh-day Adventist who was convinced that the world was going to end at the turn of the millennium. Conscious, he had but months left on the planet. He wanted to spend time at a religious retreat before he died doing charity work. He said, at that time, I was very attached to religion and Bible study. Today, I still think that on a spiritual level, it was a very good decision. But in sporting terms, it wasn't because I left football (laughs) at the best moment of my career. And obviously, as we know now, hence this podcast coming out in 2022, the millennium wasn't the end of the world. Um, And Roa was subsequently convinced by those around him to return to football, continuing with Mallorca, Albacete and Olimpo, but never really recovering the kind of form that he had previously. Uh, He was nicknamed Lechuga, which means the lettuce in Spanish. Um, I can find no evidence as to why this was the case. He was a vegetarian uh, but that doesn't seem like a good enough reason. And, Maybe and there United... are lots of layers to him. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you can kind of peel back the layers. And, but he and, might be and... the onion if you were... If you were. You uh... would think so. The religious onion. Um, religious onion. And uh, yeah, I mean, an incredible short but bizarre saga of Carlos Roa. United actually never really found an ideal replacement for Schmeichel going through six keepers before eventually reaching Edwin van der Sar, who I think has got closest since. But um, yeah, weird one to start. Yeah, I think van der Sar was was an undoubted success. And I and I would say as well, the fact that this podcast is in fact coming out in 2023 means that the world has not ended in 2022 either. This so is that's a good, good to know. This is that's a good very good point, yeah. Um, but it's a bizarre concept. Can you imagine if suddenly tomorrow, Harry Kane was just like, Lads, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm retiring. Hanging the boots up. Yeah, doing it. Yeah, I mean, it, hindsight is a wonderful thing. I realise we wouldn't even be talking about this if it were the case. But if if the world had ended, I think Roa would be able to justify that decision. Um, he would have had the last laugh. Yeah, he would have had the last laugh. We, well, he wouldn't have been able to laugh. None of us would. But I we, think we he would have been incinerated. Yes. <laughs> but I think we'll give him some credit. We're looking at it in hindsight. And um, yeah, Roa felt like a good pick for the transfer saga 11. Fair play. An unretired Carlos Roa in goal. Yes. Left back, Arthur. Is David Unsworth. Unzi. I just think of um, penalties. Yeah, he was was a very good penalty merchant, I must say. Um, But he came through the youth system at, I was going to say Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Yeah. No, it was Everton, in fact, uh, and made his debut under Joe Royal before going on to establish himself as a bit of a legend on Merseyside. 155 apps, 1995 FA Cup winner. What a title. It's a player who essentially is incredibly synonymous with Everton, having been manager of their under-23s and two-time caretaker manager. And that was the problem, really. He signed for West Ham in 1997, making his debut against Everton. But his family couldn't settle. And after one season, he asked to move closer to his Merseyside home. He didn't, however, choose to move back to Everton, despite the fact that it was a a legitimate offer on the table. But it was Aston Villa 
that are waited and they sealed their three million pound move. Now, Villa were fresh off a seventh place finish in the league under John Gregory. And I think really there's no one better to tell the story than his manager. So I'm going to channel my inner John and read from his book. (laughs) No questions about his ability as his subsequent form is underlined. But West Ham's manager, Harry Redknapp, was having problems because David's wife was desperate to get back closer to her home city of Liverpool. I spoke at length to his agent, Hayden Evans, and we decided to go for it. The following day, he trained for the first time, commuting again from Merseyside. And the day after, he reportedly said, I think I've made an unbelievable mistake. Oh no! What's that then? John Gregory said, I don't think I should have signed for Villa. John said, the words echoed around my head for a moment while I tried to unscramble them. Is this a wind-up? Basically, the journey time to training and matches he felt was going to be too much. And John Gregory quite reasonably suggested that he rent a flat in the city, maybe head home at weekends, uh, eventually look to resettle in Birmingham with his family. Um, But Unsworth said that his wife would never do that. I felt insulted, John Gregory said. The fact she would not even be prepared to come down and have a look, despite the fact that her husband had just signed for Aston Villa, well, that was a lack of respect for us. I know Brum's reputation, but I also know that you do not have to look very far for some beautiful places to live, especially on the kind of money David had just agreed to take from the community's collective pocket. He could buy as many houses as he wanted. This was just unbelievable. He's dismissing the idea without giving it a chance. So... Basically, a month after he signed for Aston Villa, one friendly match under his belt against Wickham, Gregory recognised the reluctance in his performance and agreed to sell him to Everton. Villa fortunately made back their three million. But, you know, it was one of those, when he came back to Villa, he was wearing, you know, Everton's blue. There were chants of, does your missus know you're here? Echoing around Villa Park. I mean, honestly, never been more appropriate as a chant but he just didn't settle it was a bizarre one that is such a strange twist I didn't know that story about Unsworth I've always seen him as very much being an Everton player and I I can understand it but when when such big money is on the table um, it's incredible that these things happen really absolutely there's a um, there's an interesting series of photos as well of of uh, of refunded supporters who'd got Unsworth on the back of their villa shirt really (laughs) I'm going to share one actually on our Twitter account. So head to <laughs> at 11 pod on Twitter uh, to see a picture of a very unhappy looking Andrew Bailey with oh, his, uh, no. with his mum holding his Unsworth shirt. And honestly, I've never seen such a sort of angelic little sad looking child with the Unsworth. Oh no. I, so having good. said that, I never understand why fans get the name on the back of a player who signed five minutes ago i just don't get it they could flop horribly yeah moving on center of defense men center of defense um starting with pablo ibanez (laughs) was he like wigan or something uh you're close he was birmingham okay he feels quite wigan doesn't he he does feel yeah he does he feels he feels martinez is wigan yeah alongside alcaraz yeah alcaraz and ramis Definitely. No, I, I 100% get where you're coming from there. He, he was actually a bit of a star. Um, he had an incredible career before he joined Birmingham. Um, but this is a case of how a bizarre political wrangling off the pitch can cause a noteworthy transfer saga. 
Ibanez was one of the most coveted defenders in the world. Um, six foot four, a Herculean presence, but with pace and finesse, every weapon a centre-back needs. He was at his best in the noughties. He represented Spain at the 2006 World Cup alongside Puyol. Um, and at that, that time, he was playing in the heart of Atletico Madrid's defence. But controversy in a transfer saga emerged during that time. He became embroiled in the 2006 Real Madrid presidential elections. Jose Antonio Camacho, the chosen coach of presidential candidate Juan Palacios, announced that the club would bring in Jose Antonio Reyes, Joaquin and Pablo Ibanez to strengthen the team if he won the election and that the deal for Ibanez was already done. This was true. Ibanez had been convinced to join bitter rivals Real Madrid, but only if the election went Juan's way. It didn't. Ibanez was in the centre of a media storm now, a move to Real touted, but a new president with little interest in him. Ibanez was forced to apologise to the fans at Atleti, um, apologise for accepting an offer from their bitter rivals and insist he wanted to stay. Um, But the fans at Atletico Madrid held a bit of a grudge and never really forgave him. He made mistakes in the Madrid derby in 2008 and rumours were constant that this move to Real Madrid was soon to happen. Um, But because of the loyalty issue with the new president, it never did. And so the transfer saga kept bubbling on. Um, and it, it was his next move, in fact, to go to West Brom. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> a move he always dreamed of. Yeah, yeah it really was. Um, I, I don't know whether there was a presidential element of that move to West Brom or it was, if it was just desperation. But um, it just seems crazy, really, that this is a player who was partnering Puyol one moment and Curtis Davis the next. Or Gabriel Tamas. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we, we probably didn't see the best of him in years in England, but um, certainly he was a, a, a real don in defence during the, the mid-noughties. Absolutely. He sounds like an absolute legend, to be honest, of the game. I, I really, from his brief stints with West Brom and Birmingham, really didn't, didn't remember him particularly well. I imagine at Birmingham City he was pretty old because it was his final club. I don't know, maybe he was a sort of, they they wheeled him out for a bit of experience at the heart of centre-back and he sort of regaled us of stories of playing with Thomas Ufalusi and T- Johnny Heitinger and people like that. Who's alongside him, Arthur? It's Sebastian Squillacci. <laughs> I, I always think uh, Squillacci sounds like a Pokemon. Yeah, y- yeah, absolutely. Sort of yeah. that so largely you, I feel like it you starts get... with the same two letters as the Pokemon. Well, that's it. I'm thinking you get like Squirtle, Squillacci, and then the next same evolution. four letters. Same yeah. four letters. Who am I? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, Blastoise. Blastoise. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. August 2010, Squillacci refuses to play, and I think that's a classic trope of a transfer saga. I mean, you've got stories of. Van Hoijonk. You can't say that name, can you? <laughs> You've tried it yeah. on many episodes. Well, I think you convinced me that it's Van Hoijonk. I think it is. But I'm just going to go Hoijonk. <laughs> William Gallas refused to play as well. Berbatov. 
Kenwin Jones did it at Southampton as well to force a transfer through to Sunderland. That was, I mean, as a fan, it's not something that's enjoyable to watch. You know, they are paid the big bucks to play for your side. And there they are refusing to play, downing tools. And Squillacci did it because he didn't want to play for Sevilla in the first leg of their Champions League playoff against Braga in Portugal because he didn't want to become cup-tied in Europe and therefore jeopardise his hopes of making the proposed transfer to Arsenal. Julian Escude, who was a, uh, a colleague of his, a teammate of his, said... When the coach gave his team talk, Sebastian was starting then. I do not know what happened with the coach or Monkey, who was Sevilla's sporting director, a bit of an icon of the game. But there was a change in the lineup. Later, we knew Sebastian refused to play. I'm personally a little surprised, but these are the things that happen in football. I guess he wanted to leave. I think when the opportunity to sign for Arsenal comes around, it's a hard one to say no to. Arsenal at the time, was sometimes referred to in France as their first division's 21st club. Um, they had a strong French influence. Arsene Wenger at the helm, a potential that he would be partnered with the icon that is Lauren Koscielny. Oh. And he couldn't, he couldn't give up the opportunity. He said, if a French player receives an offer from Arsene Wenger, it's practically impossible to turn down. It was a sensational offer for me, and I was happy Sevilla let me go. It was a difficult situation, but I knew I had to take this chance. I knew if I played against Braga, then I would not have been able to play for Arsenal in the Champions League. And so a player who had had a successful career with Monaco, Lyon, Sevilla, accumulating 21 international caps for France, made that move to Arsenal, but it didn't go well. He initially, as I say, started alongside Koscielny before poor form and the arrival of Per Mertesacker pushed him down the pecking order. And he headed back to, to to essentially finish his career in his homeland of Corsica with Bastia mm. um, after basically just, I mean, he had 41 appearances uh, for Arsenal, a really low haul for a player of significant quality when he was brought in. Yeah, I don't remember him being a big success story. I, I find myself now just looking at a picture of Sebastian Squillacci. He looks quite a lot like you, Arthur. I. I actually think you're a bit of a lookalike of Sebastian Squillacci. Maybe with a bit of the, or maybe a bit of the kind of rustic charm of Guile Give thrown in. But yeah, you you do look a bit like Sebastian Squillacci. I don't know, Ben. I think he's got more Rufus Sewell vibes around him. <laughs> he's quite Sewellian, <laughs> I think. <laughs> no, I I don't know. I mean, I guess our listeners don't really know what either of us look like, do they? So. Yeah, true. Um, At least you've given them a pointer. I've given them about like, I, a vague like. reference. Yeah, maybe in a yeah. future episode you can. Uh, yeah, I'll try and come up with some parallels to, me. to you. I'll I'll, I'll repost to your Squillachi shout with a uh, one in the in the next episode, okay. maybe. That's, that's um, good. But I mentioned his homeland was Corsica, um, and he actually um, fulfilled the quirk of playing for Corsica's national side oh. three times. Appearances included a one nil win against Bulgaria, which is pretty strong. Uh, And in that game, he was playing for Corsica alongside Remy Cabea and Ludovic Julie, which is great. Okay, yeah, nice. The potential sort of threat to Suriname as a a sort of offshoot of of good players, you know? Oh, I love that. 
I uh, have the right back position to pick and it was really tough and I'm sorry, but I don't know whether I have a right back. So I've gone for a centre back that I think could play there. Um, I actually could find evidence of one game on transfer marked where he had played there, although they did have a right back at centre back. So I'm not really sure that's accurate. But there we go. His name, Andy Webster. Andy Webster. Yeah. I think I think for that one, to be fair, I could legitimately say Wigan. Yes, you could. <laughs> Um, A tough tackling defender, 28 caps in a decade-long international career with Scotland, scoring once. Uh, Four Premier League games for Wigan and a couple of spells in the Football League with Bristol City and Coventry. But he's best known for his time in Scottish football and the transfer saga which surrounded him in 2006. He was starring in a Hearts defence which was competitive in the SPL and in the UEFA Cup. But as is so often the case in Scottish football, that meant that he became touted uh, for a move to one of the bigger, wealthier clubs, in this case, Rangers. And Webster wanted silverware, so his head was turned. But Hearts and indeed their chairman, Vladimir Romanov, stood in Webster's way. Understandably so. They were reluctant to let one of their star players leave to a rival. And they weren't keen on Rangers' behind-the-backs approach. But Webster hatched his own plan. He was the first player to invoke a loophole in Article 17 of the new transfer regulations FIFA had adopted. This enabled him to cancel his contract with Hearts in the third year of a four-year deal with the proviso that he joined a club in a foreign country and that sufficient notice was given to his employers. He forced through a move to Wigan Athletic that was ratified by FIFA in 2006. Um, And this crowned the Webster ruling, which effectively (laughs) describes his case. And it has been um, used as a term for several other players in recent times, including Harry Kane, Neymar and Robert Lewandowski, um, when there were rumours of moves abroad. But here comes the suspicious part. Webster stayed at Wigan for just four months before joining Rangers on loan, the deal eventually turning permanent. Hearts smelt a rat. They issued a formal complaint about his registration um, and the controversy of this transfer saga continued. It was allowed to stand, um, but in some ways Hearts had the last laugh. Um, Webster's time at Rangers was plagued by injuries. Hearts did get some compensation as it was believed that the move hadn't gone through properly. And ultimately, Webster would return to Hearts um, later in his career. So um, an interesting case, but certainly a saga that rumbled on. I think it's interesting that he did return to Hearts, given that he was required to pay 625 grand to Hearts. Surely that would make him dislike the club, the fact that they pursued him so vociferously. I think he maintained that Hearts always had a place in his heart as players are quite often say when they leave. Um, I spoke briefly with Richard Cobb, uh, a fantastic comedian and previous guest on the podcast. He's a Hearts fan and he said, "Um, I think Webster's legacy was saved with the way he applied himself on his return to Hearts in 2011. He worked his socks off and deservedly ended up with a Scottish Cup winner's medal, which he missed out on when we won the Cup in 2006. 
Um, I've got a lot of time for him um, and he's definitely not viewed with the same vitriol as the likes of our 2006 cup winning captain, Stephen Presley, who let himself down with his actions at Celtic uh, on his return to Tynecastle. So I think there has been some forgiveness from, from both sides really about the whole saga. Um, but it was certainly one that was on the Scottish back pages for a while in the noughties. So we're going to take a diminutive break from listing our transfer saga 11. Uh, And I wanted to talk to you, Arthur, about the language of transfer gossip, because it's one of those things that's kind of amused me over the years. Um, Often a saga will start with these rumblings in the newspapers and uh, across social media. Um, You know, Shane Long spotted in the Oracle. Uh, type rumours that suddenly become a thing and everyone's convinced they're going to sign. Can I tell you my favourite thing about transfer sagas is when people go on like flight trackers and see that a private jet has taken, you know, it's taken off from Rostov (laughs) to join, like, you know, to to, to like Liverpool, (laughs) John Kennedy. No, not John Kennedy. Liverpool, Paul, is it Paul McCartney Airport? I don't, I don't know what they are. But anyway, it's it's landed and everyone's like, oh, who's the who's the Rostov player who's yeah. signed for Liverpool? You know, it's, it's just so weird. It gets quite insane, doesn't it? But um, I, I found myself on the 2006 uh, transfer gossip columns of the BBC website reading some of the ways they'd written about various transfers that may or may not go through. Um, And I thought maybe we could just discuss them today and and you could help me understand what they actually mean. Of course. Very happy Uh, to help. So the first one I came across was um, this one. Stoke are lining up a £4 million raid on Portsmouth for Ghanaian midfielder Kevin Prince Boateng. I'm... A raid. A raid. What? What is it that makes it a raid? Do you know what? I would say raid would surely be. I, I mean, you've got to pick up, too. and you, you've got to pick up at least two players. I yeah, Otherwise I kind it's of just feel a, that. it's a simple purchase. I also <laughs> kind of found it weird that they were lining up this raid. It it do you has anyone ever like raided in a kind of single file queuing system? It's quite odd. I I don't think it necessarily needs to be single file if it's lined up it's just prepared oh okay yeah, yeah I they're not seen literally like just that. putting some sort of thing in a in a row they're just they're just saying yeah you know we're, we're getting the raid ready but i do i do think that therefore implies that there's an element of of, of warning for portsmouth and surely yeah, a raid they're going to raid unanticipated yeah and they're also going to raid in exchange for four million pounds which seems quite a generous raid I would, you think I you'd, yeah, you 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 wouldn't, yeah. I mean, you you would pillage yourself. You wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't pay to 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 do it. I think it's quite Viking array. It is, yeah. I um, could imagine, yeah, that's right. I could imagine like Rosenborg maybe considering a raid, um, but Stoke. I don't know. I don't feel that doesn't feel quite right. Um, no, but what about this one? Um, Watford and Reading are locked in a £750,000 battle 
with Southampton for Brentford defender Sam Sodji. Oh, I wish we'd signed Sam Sodji. Well, we did. Reading you gazumped did. us. We you gazumped, gazumped you, and he was terrible. And now he's something for betting scandal, something or other. But so we, we were, were locked. locked. We were locked, and I don't, I don't really remember us being locked anywhere. Um, but but why why are we locked? Because we can't be separated. Okay. Yeah, I think I think when you're locked in a battle. It's not typically a battle that you quantify with a with a financial sum. Mm. It's usually just locked in a battle to to purchase a player. Yeah. Um, but the fact was, it's a seven hundred and fifty thousand pound battle. It would presumably <laughs> be quite easy to extricate yourself from the locking yeah. by just making a seven hundred and seventy five thousand pound bid. I think you're right. I think I think that's why I find it a bit weird. Is a seven hundred and fifty thousand pound battle doesn't really have much kind of glamour to it, does it? Exactly. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's quite. quite it's got to be a sort of a, if it's a battle over a fee, it's got to be at least twenty five million, surely. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. What about this one? Newcastle are keeping tabs on ten million rated Germany defender Christoph Metzelder. Um, so, so I have always been fascinated by the keeping of tabs. Yes. So, ha- have they got like a spreadsheet? Yeah. It's got something. It's got a tab on like his his sort of contact details. I guess to you know to conclude the transfer, they're going to need to yeah need to know his 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 vitals. Um, but then is there a tab on his performance data? A tab on his transfer history? A tab on his injury history? Yeah. Um, a tab on his output per defensive action, um, that sort of thing. Well, this is what I was thinking. Is this an insight into how scouting works? Like, have they bookmarked a series of articles on Christoph Metzelder? And maybe there's a kind of monthly IT clear out for data protection. And the scouting team have said, no, no, we're keeping these tabs open on Christoph Mm. Metzelder. I have found where it comes from. Okay. And I can reliably inform you that it was first used in America in the mid 19th century, where bartenders started to use a slate to write down the number of drinks each customer had consumed. <laughs> so it's essentially, it's, it's, I mean, it's short for a tablet. Uh, and, so... and actually, it makes a lot of sense. Like if you start a tab. Yeah. A I bar, mean, the, the phrase makes sense, but does that imply that there's like, Newcastle have got a slate in their office that they're kind of noting down facts about Christoph Metzelder. I mean, it could be. I mean, it's it's unusual. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Uh, Watford are back in the news again in 2006 because they're making a, a swoop for QPR defender Danny Shittu. Um, <laughs> swoop for Shittu. A, a swoop for Shittu. A, a swoop? Does that have to... <laughs> <laughs> what what is it that makes it a okay, swoop? swoop a swoop for me is quite visual it's it's yeah. essentially they're on some kind of some kind of bird-like creature their <laughs> <laughs> their management slash their scouting department are on some kind of giant bird maybe okay. some kind of pterodactyl yeah and they're out on it and they swoop down pick up who pick up shitu 
uh, and then make their getaway. But the idea is that it's a very quick swoop down, pick him up, and then get out of there. You know, that's yeah, that's a swoop okay. for me. So there's an implication that the club that's making the swoop have to be almost like a, a higher level than the player that is current currently playing at, so they yeah, can swoop. Could... And there's not much there's no, not much negotiation. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. There's okay. uh, there's potential. There's potential for that, but I. I can't imagine like Barnet swooping for a Man U player. I don't know it works that way. Yeah. Uh, finally, Chelsea in 2006, their uh, teenage striker Scott Sinclair was at the centre of a transfer tug of war between Portsmouth and Sunderland. <laughs> and um, neither came out on top. No, 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 no. Um, uh, I suppose I get this one maybe more than some of the other ones. There's a bit of kind of back and forth. And is it sort of one of them, one team's tugging one arm and the other's tugging the other arm and Scott's kind of having to... Presumably. I think that was the bit that confused me the most, maybe, is that he was kind of at the centre of this tug of war. Like, was he, yeah, what was it one arm and, and the other arm or was he just kind of adjudicating it? Um, I mean, I mean, it would be quite I, weird if if Scott wasn't at the centre, where else would Scott be in this tug of war? Well, there's really no need for him to be there. Yeah, there is. Is there? They're, they're tugging him. <laughs> <laughs> they're, the two teams are trying to tug Scott, Scott off. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're doing their best. They're tugging away. <laughs> Um, uh, and surely, I mean, I, I, we all know what a tug of war is. This one's very visual. Um, we can, we can all see Scott being tugged off and, and whichever team, I don't know. Whichever team them, wins, we'll, yeah. we'll have a happy ending. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that was well, so that was, yeah. Left midfield, and it's Joey Beecham. Oh, no. No, good. No bells. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased because every player I mention rings a bell with you, Ben, and it's no. quite difficult to find one that doesn't. So I've, I've, I'm, I feel like that's a success for me. Yeah. This was a hugely talented player at Oxford, lighting up the pitch from his position on the left of midfield. He'd given the usually reliable Julian Dix a torrid time when West Ham and Oxford met. And for this reason, he caught the eye of West Ham manager Billy Bonds. Um, Oxford had just been relegated from Division One, which is now the championship, in 1994 and were under huge financial pressure. Their owner, media magnate Robert Maxwell, had died in 1991 and his death had revealed vast levels of fraud. Uh, thereby unravelling his empire and plunging Oxford United into financial abyss. Here's the difficulty. Joey did not want to leave Oxford, but following a bid of £1.2 million, which for the time was an enormous amount of money, from West Ham, he was met with a dilemma. He said, Oxford United told me that if I didn't join West Ham, then Oxford would be over. They had no money. What was I supposed to do? I could never have lived with myself if I refused to join West Ham and then Oxford did go under. 
The deal was concluded within hours of Beecham meeting the West Ham management at a hotel near Heathrow, which was only 45 minutes from his Oxford home. And the difficulty here was he hadn't quantified that East London is a hell of a lot further from Oxford than Heathrow was. And therefore, he struggled. He'd had problems with mental health um, throughout his life, actually, which would ultimately and tragically lead to him taking his own life last year at the age of just 50. And the move at the time proved way too much for him. A key difference between transfers then and now was that in those days, there was no sports management company to uh, like ensure a s- smooth transition to his new club, uh, no club liaison officers, welfare officers, uh, psychological support, all sorts of things like that. So Joey remained in Oxford and chose to commute to East London for training. Harry Redknapp, who was assistant manager at West Ham, said he, he broke down in tears on his first day as he was homesick. Uh, he turned up late for a preseason game at Portsmouth and was seen to be making little effort. Um, Billy Bonds went further. He referred to him publicly as a wimp and said the club was too big for the player. Um, sadly, Joey got death threats. People had been turning up to his parents' house at 10pm to see if he was there. It was a really sorry tale, to be honest. And the more I read about it, the more sad I became uh, about Joey Beecham because this was an absolutely outstanding player. Um, His former teammate, uh, Chris Allen, said, oh, my God, England caps easily. If he'd stayed at West Ham and and done at least two of those years that he signed for, he would have been an international footballer. He was just unbelievable. He could go both ways. He scored goals from outside the box. His crossing was ridiculous. Malcolm Elias, who was Southampton's head of youth recruitment, and he's pretty well established in the game, says, Since I started, I've been involved with lots and lots of top players. The Gareth Bales of this world, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Theo Walcott, Luke Shaw. Joey Beecham, to me, ranks amongst those young players. So this was a player who was immensely talented, never wanted to leave his club, and ended up signing for West Ham. And he would end up leaving West Ham for Swindon after just 58 days without even playing a competitive game for the Hammers. Um. It didn't really work out that well at Swindon, nor did he frankly really want to go there because Swindon are fierce rivals of Oxford United. But he signed there because it was close to his Oxford home. Yeah. Fortunately, 14 months later, he was back at Oxford where he would remain for the rest of his career. 400 games, nearly 80 goals, some of them scintillating. There's a 30-yarder <laughs> against Blackpool in 1995-96 that just sails into the top corner off the bar. Wonderful. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, it is, a, it is a bit of a sad story and I know we are a lighthearted podcast, but I, I feel like Joey Beecham, especially given, um, the tragic events of last year, I think there really needs to be more of a light shone about what a legend he was actually, and what a talented player he was and how ultimately incredibly tragic the situation he found himself in was mental health in football these days is a massive subject and it's widely talked about at the time it really really wasn't um and he was really publicly ridiculed for what was a really unfortunate situation yeah a story brilliantly told after and you know well worthwhile telling uh, i think that's the the important thing isn't it we often believe that because footballers have so much money and such a different lifestyle that they're in some way immune to mental health problems and problems like homesickness when they transfer between clubs and that's absolutely 
not the case. And and, and so often transfers do fall through or, or fail or flop because players are just not happy and not themselves. Um, and that, that is the case with Joey Beecham. I, I'm glad to see that he's celebrated and his life is celebrated at Oxford um, with a bar that's that's opened at the uh, at the grounds, which I think I've actually been to. I think I've I might have actually gone there when I visited Oxford United a few years ago. Um, I, I'm not I, sure I went to the bar there, but I have been to the Kassam Stadium, and it's yes, a, uh, yeah, it's a great great place. You've got you've got a you've got a great bowling alley just opposite yeah. it um, if you're that way inclined. And, uh, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, if the football's so shit that you want to go bowling. You can always follow um, it up with a bit of bit of tenpin. Yeah, so, uh, there we go. Great, lovely pick. Love that. Um, our first centre midfielder. If you are a regular listener to the eleven, thank you. Um, you will find that in each of our episodes there is a player uh, or a position rather that's up for grabs. Uh, so that is a vote on Twitter at eleven pod. The word, not the number. Uh, and we have a couple of nominations in as well from uh, guests. Uh, so a little more on that later. The other centre midfielder, though, Arthur, is back to you, my friend. And I couldn't look beyond John Obi Mikel. All oh, right, no, I, and actually, you many people can't look beyond him because he is so big. He is. He's large. Um, this is a player who started his career at Plateau United in the Nigerian top division, having been plucked from the wonderfully named Pepsi Academy. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, the pedigree. I imagine there was a tug of war over him when he was coming oh, of out course. of Pepsi Academy. Absolutely. The tug of war is to come. Don't you worry. Mm. Um, but he signed uh, for Lynn in Norway. Um, she's a lovely lady, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah (laughs) (laughs) and she soon had John Obi Mikel under her wing um so that was good um then it got bizarre in April 2005 Man United announced they'd signed him just days before his 18th birthday John Obi Mikel's agents were bypassed as the club persuaded the youngster to sign a four-year contract without representation Lynn allegedly sent a fax to so I can't get <laughs> I can't get this sort of old old yeah. lady to send it. <laughs> oh, Good old Lynn. Mm. And it backs that up by the fact that Lynn allegedly sent a fax. Of course she sent a fax. <laughs> Lynn allegedly sent a fax to his agents abroad, claiming their services were no longer required by Mikel. <laughs> Reports said the deal was initially worth £4 million and would see the player arrive at Old Trafford in January 2006. Chelsea, meanwhile, also claimed to have a deal with him, the youngster reportedly having impressed Mourinho when he trained with the club's first team that summer. Mikel expressed his delight at joining United in a hastily arranged press conference where he was pictured holding holding up a Man U shirt bearing the squad number 21. On the 11th of May 2005, however, the midfielder went missing during a Norwegian Cup game against Klemetsrud. He had not been selected for that match, and had, but had been watching from the stands. This story, of course, was picked up in the media and sparked frenzied reports that he'd been kidnapped. And actually, Chelsea were one of the clubs who were allegedly involved. Mikel himself said... 
look, I wasn't really kidnapped. I was just staying away from the public eye, making sure no one knew where I was. But there was a public announcement in Norway that if anyone saw me, they should report it to the police. So I had to go and hide. Obviously, Man United were trying to get hold of me. So was Lynn. <laughs> so were Lynn. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Lynn wanted was... to know when I'd be home for dinner. Exactly. <laughs> he said there were some tough times. It was like a movie. And in the end, FIFA ruled he should return to Lynn, whereupon a ruling could be made on whether his contract with United should be upheld or not. Chelsea eventually stepped in and settled prior to the ruling, paying United £12 million and Lynn £4 million. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Buy herself a new Stanner <laughs> stairlift with that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn director Morgan Anderson was subsequently convict- convicted of fraud, leading Chelsea to make a £16 million claim against him and the club. It was eventually settled out of court. For his part, Mikel went on to have a hugely successful career at Chelsea. He won two Premier League titles, three FA Cups, the League Cup, the Champions League, the Europa League, all during his 11-year stay. An unbelievable career for him uh, i have a question though ben yes where did he play in england after chelsea middlesbrough well done any other clubs no stoke city oh i don't remember that he doesn't seem very stoke does he no he really doesn't um they must have swooped for him i guess yeah bizarre but those pictures of a john obi Mikel with um with his Man U shirt are just yeah. so iconic because has there ever been a situation where a player has not signed for a club but has their shirt and is doing a press conference? Weird. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure Very that would have been. weird. Um, do get in touch at 11pod, the word, not the number, if that has happened before. On the right side of the midfield in our transfer saga 11, David Bellion. A Man U icon. Well, yes, absolutely. But it was the move to Man U that was controversial. Was it? Uh, when I think to be- uh, of Bellion, I think pace, pace and more pace. He was a coveted star in his youth and he'd actually competed in the National Indoor Youth Running Championships. He signed for Premier League club Sunderland in July 2001, age 21. Uh, and he scored his first Premier League goal a year later became a first-team regular at the Stadium of the Light, playing on the wing um, or in a more central striker role. He wasn't prolific by any means, but he was nippy and dangerous. Uh, and Sir Alex was very interested at Manchester United. So started a protracted transfer saga. Taking this account from the Roker report, firstly, whilst the club were desperately struggling to stave off relegation, Sunderland that is, the young forward went AWOL, a move which hardly endeared himself to the Sunderland fans. Bellion would later excuse his absence due to looking after his ill grandmother and withdrew himself from selection, claiming he was mentally unfit to take part in a relegation battle. But something didn't seem right and Bob Murray knew it. Speculation began to rapidly grow that both Manchester United and Liverpool were interested in Bellion and that the old Trafford outfit had tapped the forward up. The plot thickened again as the former Arsenal vice chairman David Dean claimed that his club had been offered Bellion services illegally. 
Some time went by. Things continued to be confusing in this saga. And in what was already becoming one of the most bizarre and protracted transfer sagas of recent times, Sunderland suddenly buckled and Bob Murray signed a confidentiality agreement, which stated that no investigation would be conducted with regards to Bellion's move to United. Compensation was agreed and it was down to Bellion. But Bellion found himself disillusioned by the whole affair that had dragged on and at one point declared his intent to return to France because he was confused about how English clubs do business. He did then change his mind again, though, and signed for Manchester United. And of course, as you know, Arthur, he he went on to play for them, wasn't hugely successful, four goals in 24 games over three years. But that, that is four more goals than he scored for West Ham during a loan spell there. I don't really know what man you saw in him Mm. I mean he was quick but I mean that season before he signed for United he scored one Premier League goal yeah and the team he became a first team regular in got the third lowest Premier League points tally ever I mean it's odd it is odd I think he was compared to Thierry Henry you're like what yeah pace like Yaya Sonogo all over again speed um, yeah, agility. Just three words for the same thing, really. Well, you did uh, say he had pace, pace, pace earlier, so you yeah, used three so words just, for the same thing. I've mixed it up a bit. That's the only yeah. thing I can think of, because his his record wasn't great throughout his career. Um, it, it turned a little uh, during his time at Red Star, who were a Parisian team. Uh, that was at the very end of his career. And he still works there as creative director, which is a really <laughs> novel role. Um, he himself has said it's about trying to build bridges between culture and football. Um, and it's actually really cool. It's, it's basically about partnerships between artists, musicians, um, local small businesses and the football club to kind of create this sort of uh, like brilliant content, really, for social media, but also kit designs and it's quite cool it's quite a novel approach i think paris red star is seen as the kind of hipster side um Mm. the hipster alternative to paris saint-germain so um yeah that's what he does with his life now what a legend I'm tasked with finding the first of our two strikers. And so I've decided to go with Carlos Kaiser. Uh, I, I've i heard of him because you've told me about him, I think. <laughs> I think I have. I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with the story of Carlos Kaiser. Um, it's the subject of a 2018 film called The Greatest Footballer Never to Play Football. Oh, wow. Oh, his name was Carlos Henrique Raposo, okay. um, and his nickname was Carlos Kaiser, which stemmed from his alleged resemblance to German football legend Franz Beckenbauer. Oh, okay. I have and seen a picture, a... and he looks absolutely nothing like him. <laughs> um, he's a Brazilian former football player, or can you say that? Known primarily for having a decade-long career without actually ever playing a single game. And so I've included him in the Transfer Sagas 11 simply because he had so many of them and I can't understand why, because he never played. Um, I've done a bit of digging 
to find out why. And this is what I've come up with. What he lacked in footballing and athletic ability, he more than made up for with his social skills, befriending a number of high-profile players at various clubs, as well as journalists, all of whom he used to essentially create a network that helped facilitate transfers and, and build up this image of essentially a football player without actually having to take to the field. Carlos would begin his ruse by signing short contracts and stating from the beginning that he needed to work on his fitness to become match ready. This gave him in general around five weeks to impress the team staff in physical training, where he would truly shine, to be fair. In team practice games, he often faked hamstring injuries to hide his poor skills, and if teams wanted to investigate further, he had a dentist who always confirmed that he had a focal infection. The untalented footballer would also rely on journalist friends to hype himself up with fake articles about what a wonderful player he was. One article claimed he played so well at Puebla that he was invited to become a Mexican citizen, while another claimed that he'd been top scorer for French team Ajaccio, where he allegedly played for eight seasons. Raposo's friend, who was called Fabio Barros, actually played four seasons at the French club and later confirmed he'd never even been to Corsica. Another way that Carlos Kaiser hyped himself up was to use toy cell phones to make fake conversations in foreign languages and reject made-up transfer offers in public. He once used photos of himself wearing an Ajaccio jersey that his friend Barros had given to him and a fake identification card to improve his CV as a player. The only time where he actually came close to taking the field was during his time at a Brazilian club called Bangu. Tired of seeing him training all the time but never actually playing, their coach instructed him to warm up and regardless of his physical condition, he would be playing. Whilst warming up, Kaiser started to look at ways of avoiding having to take the <laughs> field and and therefore the ruse would become public. So he saw a group of supporters verbally abusing his teammates and he rushed straight to them and got in a fight with them for which he received an immediate red card without setting a foot on the pitch. Oh, he was God. confronted by his coach and he then made up the story that the opposing team supporters had called the coach a thief and that he was only defending his honour. He allegedly got a six-month contract extension for it. Oh, oh, no! So, I mean, he played for some unbelievable clubs. He played for Vasco da Gama, Independiente, Fluminense and Flamengo, who are four of Brazil's biggest clubs. Um, But he didn't play for any of them. And this this story just... It's flabbergasting. And I've seen it a few times sort of dotted around and I've always wanted to get Carlos into an 11. And I just think because of the the, the very fact that these transfers even happened yeah. and he created his own illusion. And I, I have a huge amount of respect for that, but also it's just bizarre. I Yeah, I can't it really understand bizarre. it. What era are we talking here? Yeah, it was kind of like mostly 80s. Late 80s, very early 90s. Wow, it's not that long ago then. You know, not really before the time of proper transfer scrutiny. So I suppose incredible. given it's before, you know, this wouldn't exist in 
social you know the day of social media yeah these days because there's you know and, and and scouting and there's so many ways of rumbling someone who's lying about this um but in many ways it's what gives us some of our like iconic moments in football carlos kaiser ali dear um a, a story like ali dear would not happen today simply because there's so many so much safeguarding and so much sort of um caution put into a potential signing by jove We've got a strong strike force today, Arthur, because <laughs> um, partnering Carlos is Milton Nunes. I don't think I know Milton, but we are relying on him for a lot of goals because Carlos won't even be playing. No. Uh, so uh, is he a brother of of, of Darwin? Uh, he's not. No. Uh, no. Sometime before that, that he was playing a, a truly unbelievable transfer saga, this one. Uh, and it involves Peter Reed and his scouting team at Sunderland, who were looking for transfer differential and a bargain striker from the Greek League. And through a combination of physical appearances and videos, they narrowed down a shortlist and became particularly interested in a black South American PAOK Thessaloniki hitman named Adolfo Valencia. Simultaneously, though, they were told about Eduardo Bennett, a black Honduran striker, making waves and scoring relentlessly for his national team. South American, striker, Honduran, Greek League, striker, Honduran, South American. That's right, in a bizarre and hilarious folly of Chinese whispers, Sunderland got a little confused and the man that eventually turned up for a medical at Wearside <laughs> was actually the wrong guy. Introducing no. Milton Nunes, partner oh. of Valencia at PAOK and Bennett for the Honduran national team, but not a player Peter Reid had ever seen on video. And that became quite obvious because firstly, Milton Nunes was just five foot four in comparison to Valencia and Bennett, who were both pushing six foot. And secondly, Milton Nunes <laughs> was dreadful, having just wasted £1.6 million on the diminutive striker. Sunderland would only deem Nunes worthy of just 15 minutes of football. He sparked laughter when paraded around the ground at Sunderland. Living up to his nickname Tyson, he performed a bizarre shadow boxing routine as he did a lap of the pitch. It didn't work out. It was a disaster. Uh, and Nunez did eventually leave Sunderland. He'd find his level, though, in the Central American leagues and do very well at international level. 33 goals in 86 games, albeit most of those against weaker opposition that Honduras were playing. Uh, and he'd even get the rare honour of playing alongside his son at Club Victoria, who he also called Milton Nunez. Maybe hoping for another case of mistaken identity, Arthur. It's flabbergasting that something like that can happen in the year 2000. It's mad. I really, I, I, like, <clears throat> he hadn't scored for P-O-A-K, PAOK. He hadn't scored. And then he was expected to uh, to bang them in for Sunderland. Yeah. A bizarre situation. And actually slightly smacks of Mike Bassett to me. Arthur, we return to the centre of the midfields and are up for grabs pick for the transfer saga. 11, 
delighted to have a nomination from Nigel Tassel. Um, I'm reading Nigel's book at the moment. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's called The Bottom Corner, Hope, Glory and Non-League Football. Um, tracks a number of players and clubs and, and the battle to get back to the Football League. So really recommend that one. Um, but there are several others. There's the Hard Yards, Triumph, Despair and Championship Football. I'm looking forward to reading that, being a Reading fan. And most topically, he has written a book called The Boot Sale, uh, or Boot Sale rather, Inside the Strange and Secret World of Football's Transfer Window. And that made him particularly qualified to suggest a centre midfielder. My pick to take the vacant berth at the heart of this team is Jermaine Genus. Genus made three deadline day moves. One involved heading out to Villa from Spurs, um, when earlier in the day he thought he was en route to Man City. Another happened towards the end of his career when he signed for QPR on the very day that Peter Odomwingi famously didn't. But it's Genus's first 11th hour move that's the most interesting, um, the one he made on the final day of August in 2005. It's actually the opposite of a transfer saga. Uh, he was at Newcastle, where he's very unhappy under Graham Souness, but that particular day he was away on England duty and his phone rang at 10pm in the team hotel. So only an hour or so till the window shut and Spurs wanted to sign him. Fortunately, he was in St Albans uh, and Spurs training grounds not too far from there. So cue the sketchiest of medicals and the speediest of signatures. And Genus was was within the hour a Spurs player. Um, but he's, the interesting thing is he never once returned to Newcastle, not even to retrieve his personal effects. He said, I left everything that was in my locker, boots, Shin pads. I even had two houses there, but I never went back. I was gone. A brilliant synopsis of Jermaine Genus's love of the final day of the transfer window. Um, <laughs> and also our first ever one show presenter to be nominated for an 11. I, I kind of like that. Alex Jones up next. Yeah, let's get him in. The next nomination is from Ted Hankey who is a comedian and podcaster from Teesside. Uh, he's hosted the Hanky Panky Comedy Club and the Ted Hanky Podcast, um, and he's a massive, massive Borough fan. I wonder who he's gone for. All right, it's me, Ted Hanky, uh, the comedian, not the, the darts wrong. Uh, football transfer sagas, a midfielder who stands out for me in the past was Diddy Haman. I just remember, I think it was about 2006 or something like that, and... Uh, a Liverpool, he'd been there about seven or eight years. He'd won loads of stuff, and and Rafa Benitez, I think, just tried to sell him on. And Big Sam Allardyce stepped up with Bolton Wanderers and thought, you know what I mean? I'll have a, I'll have a bit of Diddy Hamann. He just lost like JJ Kocher and that, and uh, and then I think Hamann got there and thought, ah, oh, you know what I mean? Big Sam, he's, he's just like a bit mad, isn't he? I don't like him, so uh, sack that off. I'll uh, I won't sign the contract and I'll move to Man City. So I think he joined Man City on the same day. He was actually, he almost signed for Bolton as well. So it's quite funny that I think uh, Bolton got about half a million quid in compensation, which is not really. But uh, I'd be fuming me if I was Big Sam. I'd be hunting him down and trying to give him a clip. You know what I mean? But yeah, Diddy Haman is my selection. It's not a Borough play. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Diddy Haman. What, what an icon of the game. It's a great story, that one. Love it. Um, he didn't nominate a Borough player, so I will. Um, I'm going to throw in Emerson. 
Ooh, Emerson. Interesting. Yeah. There are several Emersons in football history. This is the uh, the Borough one with the long, curly black hair. Uh, a dynamic, deep-lying playmaker who was caught in the middle of a tale of two Robsons. He was flying in the mid-90s and became Portuguese Player of the Year when managed by the late Bobby Robson at Porto. Cue interest from elsewhere and much to Bobby's annoyance, he was allowed to join Middlesbrough for four million in '96. Then Borough manager Brian Robson didn't know about this transfer, but he'd soon learned to love the Brazilian who became a cult hero at the Riverside in 41 games at the club. But the situation unravelled quickly and a transfer saga began. Emerson's former manager, Bobby Robson, now at Barcelona, expressed an interest in signing him. It unsettled the midfielder. By this time, he'd already endured relegation to Division One. Um, and he'd had difficulty adjusting to life on Teesside. He travelled to Brazil for a break at the end of 97, went AWOL, threatened he wouldn't return to the club. Keith Lamb, the borough chief exec, was having none of it. He said, people in Spain are amazed that Middlesbrough can stand up to Barcelona, but we won't be bullied by some of the alleged larger clubs in Europe. Um, and actually, he never did sign for Barcelona, so I guess it worked. But um, friction, rumbling rumours, an impasse, um, no move went through for Emerson. He wouldn't go back to Borough, though, and he'd eventually sign for Tenerife. Wow. Mm. And some serious good, uh, some serious transfer buzzwords there from you. Well done. Thank you. I love those. I'm going to go for Kaka. Oh, yeah. Okay. Following City's 2008 takeover by Sheikh Mansour, um, the club were linked with so many unbelievable footballers of course they pulled off some of those moves uh for the likes of uh Rolando Bianchi and... <laughs> big moves for uh you know Rolando Bianchi <laughs> indeed uh, no Rubinho Rubinho is the main uh the main star that they signed but they were also linked with which is I mean it's just a huge name um you know, a Brazilian superstar, uh, the winner of the Ballon d'Or in 2007. Um, his his move to Man City would have sent shockwaves uh, throughout European football. And Man City, th- this is this is where where I mean, Kaka didn't want to move to Man City, but Man City had a bid of 91 million pounds accepted back in 2008. And they were proposing paying him a wage of 500 grand a week. Wow. I mean, that's an enormous sum of money these days, let alone back in 2008. Yeah. Everything looked like it was going to happen. Unfortunately, the move never happened. And he moved to Real Madrid six months later. Um, Asked about the link with Chelsea, he was coy, but he confirmed the offer from Man City. The real offer I got, from an English club was Man City's around six months before I moved to Madrid City were in the early days of the project and they wanted me to be one of their leaders on the pitch I, I mean you can absolutely see why they wanted to sign him um, and it rumbled on it got us believing here in England that a legend of the game was gonna gonna arrive on these shores I, I mean so many big name transfers that you know, never never actually came to fruition. Things like Robert Lewandowski to Blackburn, Alan Shearer to Man U, Maradona to Sheffield United was yeah. a was a big uh, yeah, yeah, a big yeah. one. Zidane to Blackburn again. 
Blackburn fans must be pulling their hair out at some yeah. of these names linked with them over the years. But um, no, I just thought it was worthwhile giving a nod to uh, to the legend that is Kaka and his uh, his potential move to uh, to Man City. Blackburn linked with all these names, and they ended up with Shefki Kuchi. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, yeah, at eleven pod, the word, not the number. Your decision. Who plays centre midfield? Who's on the bench, Ben? Uh, yeah, just narrowly missing out is Diafra Sacco. Although maybe it's best that we have a striker on the bench with Kaiser's aptitude of getting out of playing. Sacco, he had an acrimonious saga in 2017. Uh, he did an Odin wingy. He travelled to Rennes without any deal being agreed. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't go through. So he bizarrely returned to West Ham via helicopter for crunch talks via Cheltenham Racecourse, where he placed a bet on a horse and won £550. So, wow. um, yeah, weird story, but we'll Sacco. Also, Crunch Talks. I can't believe we haven't mentioned those until now. No, I know. Outrageous. Absolutely. So running you through our Transfer Saga 11, in goal we've got Carlos Roa, at left-back David Unsworth, a centre-back pairing of Sebastian Squilacci and Pablo Ibanez, and on the right, it's Andy Webster. Left of midfield, Joey Beecham. Right of midfield, David Bellion. In the centre of the park, it's John Obi Mikel and a choice of yours. And then up front, it's Carlos Kaiser, not actually playing, and Milton Nunes. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.